Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Caroline Binham. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Also down the line from Brussels, we'll be talking to Jim Brunston, our EU correspondent. And in our segment from New York, we'll be hearing from Kara Scannell, our senior US financial correspondent, and Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. We'll also be speaking to a guest, Dr Anna Bradshaw of the law firm Peterson Peterson London. We'll be discussing the European Union's rules around winding down banks, particularly in light of Italy's moves earlier this summer to bail out two Veneto lenders. Then we'll be talking about RBS's Brexit plans and a new investigation into alleged money laundering at the state-backed lender. And finally, we'll hear about our FT analysis on the haul of misconduct fines that US authorities have levied since the onset of the financial crisis a decade ago. So, Jim, you had an exclusive interview with Elke Koenig of the Single Resolution Board, which is the Eurozone special agency that oversees the winding up of lenders. And earlier this summer, we obviously saw two very different approaches in Italy and then Spain over how to deal with failing banks. What did she have to say for herself? Well, I think the main point that she made in the interview reflects a wider concern, really, which is that rules that the euro area put in place after the financial crisis, which were intended to make sure that taxpayers did not have to bail out banks, seem to be being worked around or loopholes are being found in them and that there needs to be some response to that. And the main thing that she's got her eye on is what happened in the case of these two smaller Italian banks from the Veneto region a bit earlier this year, a few weeks ago, where these banks were dealt with under national insolvency law in Italy, not via the new EU rules intended to protect taxpayers. So the upshot of this was that although junior creditors at these banks were wiped out, senior creditors were protected and public money was used to help stabilise the situation at the banks, basically to help smoothly wind them down. And what Elke Koenig, the head of the SRB, is now saying is we need to look more broadly at the rules we have in Europe and especially at some guidance that the European Commission produced back in 2013, which basically clarifies when public money, state support can be given to banks, that that needs to be looked at so we can try and close some of these loopholes and make clear that there is one level playing field for banks in Europe. And do you think that her position would have much support from others? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you can see a clear division emerging about this. The German government and finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble in particular were livid at the way the situation was handled with the two Italian banks. They've also been looking somewhat sceptically at other developments in Italy where another workaround from the EU rules was used in the case of Monte de Paschi earlier this year. And so there is a lot of support for Elke Koenig's stance coming from that quarter. Also, Jeroen Dijsselbloem, who is the president of the Eurogroup, the group that brings together Eurozone finance ministers, he's also said that this issue needs to be looked at. But on the other side of the argument, you quite clearly have the European Commission. And the European Commission finds itself in a very difficult situation with this. Essentially, it is the guardian of state aid in Europe. So the the European Commission has executive power to police state aid. And it produced this guidance in 2013 that's now under the microscope. The problem for the Commission is because this guidance was used in the case of Italy and allowed Italy to protect the senior bondholders at these two Veneto banks, 
it's very difficult for the Commission to now suddenly turn around and say, yep, these two quite controversial decisions we took only a few weeks ago were done on the basis of rules which are out of date. And so now we need to revisit those rules. So I think most reasonable people would say there's some underlying logic at looking again at the 2013 state aid guidance. But the Commission finds itself in a very difficult position, having literally just used it a few weeks ago in the case of the Italian banks. Thanks, Jim. Moving on to our second item. Emma, you've been looking at RBS's most recent financial results and I think they included some news about its post-Brexit plans too. Can you run us through them? Indeed. So Royal Bank of Scotland posted a better than expected set of results, reporting that in the first half of the year it delivered a net profit of nearly £1 billion, reversing a huge £2 billion loss last year. And this marks its first six-month net profit in three years and one of its best results since the financial crisis. But at the same time, it also un- unveiled its post-Brexit contingency plans. The bank said that it will expand its Amsterdam operation in the event of a hard Brexit where the UK loses its ability to freely passport its services and products across the EU. So what it will do in this instance is use its Dutch banking licence to move some of its NatWest markets operation, which is essentially its investment bank serving corporate clients, to Amsterdam in order to continue seamlessly providing services to its UK customers that need to operate in Europe, in the European Union and vice versa. Management at RBS said that the costs shouldn't be too hefty. It expects the set-up costs to be in the low tens of millions of pounds and that operational costs should amount to roughly the same and that the division in Amsterdam could need about 150 staff, although the bank is not yet certain as to whether this 150 will all need to operate from Amsterdam or perhaps some could operate in London. And the bank already has a licence in Amsterdam, so it's just moving people to somewhere that it's already got a setup. So the bank has a licence in Amsterdam which is purposed for markets and investment banking activity which is why it actually chose its Amsterdam base for this purpose and it's the latest sign really of Amsterdam emerging as one of the favoured cities among financial services companies. It follows a decision by Mitsubishi, Japan's largest bank, last week to also use Amsterdam as its base in the European Union. And Emma, If I remember rightly, there was hidden amongst the laundry list of misconduct items that RBS has to provision for, there was mention of a new money laundering investigation, no? Yes, RBS did not provide much detail on this, but essentially disclosed that the Financial Conduct Authority has opened up an investigation into a potential breach of money laundering rules. And at the journalist conference last week, Ross McEwen, the chief executive, confirmed that the FCA is in the very early stages of this investigation, but that it's one to keep an eye on for us. But it comes as UK banks report a flurry of further provisions for ongoing misconduct charges. Lloyd's Banking Group, for example, recently posted another £1 billion provision to cover the ongoing payment protection insurance mis-selling debacle, and Barclays had to set aside almost as much for the same issue. Banks, although they reported quite a positive set of results in the first half, continued to set aside these below-the-line provisions, which continues to weigh on statutory profit. However, a report just out this morning from Standard & Poor's expects that these conduct provisions will start to drop away later this year and early next year, which should see a boost to statutory return on equity. Money laundering is actually a really big theme of the FCAs right now. And to talk to us about that is Anna Bradshaw, who is a lawyer at Peters & Peters, who also holds a doctorate in anti-money laundering. Anna, 
RBS just seems to be the latest lender that the FCA is investigating over potentially falling foul of money laundering regulations. And it seems a really hot topic at the moment. Could you talk us through what's going on? Money laundering in general is a very hot topic indeed at the moment. And this is for various reasons, not least is the new regime. So we have new rules that were introduced on the 26th of June in furtherance of the fourth money laundering directive. And the UK was one of the first member states of the EU to have the rules in place by the deadline for implementation. And one of the reasons why many believe is because the UK is currently undergoing a review by the Financial Action Task Force, which will be looking at the extent of the UK's compliance with the 40 recommendations for combating money laundering and terrorist financing. And it's this review that I suspect is in the background of many people's heads at the decision-making level and may very well influence how RBS and other UK institutions are dealt with. And the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, that's the supranational body, isn't it, that oversees money laundering regulations and their implementation? That's right. And the UK is very keen to get a favourable review in this latest round of assessments. And the FCA, they have explicitly said that they will start to use their criminal powers now. How do you think that's going to play out? It's going to be very interesting. And personally, I predict the same type of turf wars, if I can call it that, between the different agencies in the UK, which might have an interest in pursuing this type of activity, because there are many potential contenders And I think it might come down to which authority, which enforcement body has the most appropriate powers to address conduct of this type. Looking at the recent deferred prosecution agreements, it may very well be that depending on the scale of the wrongdoing, the most appropriate disposal might be a criminal prosecution that could potentially be disposed of by way of a deferred prosecution agreement. But then you would have to factor in the limitations to that power in the sense that it's only available to the CPS and the Serious Fraud Office at this point in time. If you're a bank right now, I mean, do you have any idea as to when a money laundering matter might tip over from the civil to the criminal? It's very difficult to predict, unfortunately, and it's even more difficult to predict when you're talking about cross-border conduct, which is potentially being looked at by agencies and enforcement authorities in other jurisdictions. You would expect the decision to prosecute not to be taken lightly, and where you're looking at parallel civil and criminal and regulatory enforcement action, you would expect these to be coordinated very carefully indeed to avoid any prejudice on one against the other. Well, definitely one to watch. Thank you, Anna. And talking of misconduct, for our last item, Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Kara Scannell about a special Financial Times series on the cost of the financial crisis 10 years on. Okay, Kara, it's almost exactly 
10 years since the financial crisis, and you've done a fantastic piece of work adding up all the fines that the banks have paid since then, and it's come to a very round number, $150 billion. So tell me, how did you go about putting all this stuff together? Well, we started a spreadsheet a couple of years ago, and we started to see these massive settlements, like the National Mortgage Settlement, $25 billion, including five major U.S. financial institutions, and then the string of the Department of Justice and state settlements against the major banks in the billions and billions of dollars. It was impacting the bank's bottom line. We thought we should start a spreadsheet and kind of track this. We had been doing that and then just kind of went back and built on it, added in some of the other players in the financial crisis, like the credit rating agencies that also paid settlements, and then just kind of tallied it from there. And we saw a month or so ago RBS pay a fine, which Mm -hmm. pushed us over the $150 billion mark. Yeah, I was going to ask, how close are we to the end of the tunnel for the banks as far as crisis-related misdeeds go? Well, we've seen a number of the banks settle already. There's few left in the pipeline. Barclays is fighting a lawsuit by DOJ. It remains to be seen what happens there. They could go to trial and they could win or they could end up paying a big fine. This is for the same stuff that Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse settled with, right? This is the big RMBS working group task force for the selling of mortgage-backed securities. Why is Barclays elected to fight it? It's interesting. People always try to strategize. Do you pay up front and hopefully pay the least amount? Mm -hmm. Do you drag it on and then in hopes that new change administration, maybe nobody will want to pursue these cases? So it's always a gamble. I mean, I guess they must think that they have a case that's worth pushing. Well, this piece has stirred some very good comments online. And I I like one of the comments in particular by a reader pointing out that, yes, 150 billion, that's a nice headline number. But the real number that matters is uh, jail sentences for top execs. And he said that's zero. Is that a fair point to make? It is zero. If we're talking about any of the banks that have paid fines, not one CEO has been charged with anything, even on a civil basis from like a regulator. The one Wall Street trader who has gone to prison was a Credit Suisse trader who Mm -hmm. had pled guilty to inflating his ABS book. I think it is a fair comparison when people think about accountability and you think about the outrage that was seen in the U.S. election this year. You know, it is something that I think people want to see someone held accountable. And the question of fines is that it becomes, is it just the cost of doing business? When you look, and you would know better than I, some of these fines maybe at the time seemed like they were a big deal to banks because some banks ended up having their first losing quarter in years, but they quickly make that up in profits in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. And the broader point is that the shareholders are paying, not the execs. As Jamie Dimon once famously said, hit me with a fine and we can afford it. Exactly. I mean, that is an issue. It's very interesting in the new administration. The view of the current SEC chairman is a bit of that flavor of the fines are really hurting shareholders. So I think the dynamic going forward is going to be interesting. Do we see fewer fines? Do we see more individuals held accountable? Do we have any sense of where the wind will blow over the next few years? This is Jay Clayton, the SEC chairman. He's been there a couple of months now. Yeah, he's been in office a couple of months. He hired as the enforcement director a former prosecutor who was also his partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, this guy named Steve Pekin. He's a fairly aggressive prosecutor, not in an overreach way, but, you know, willing to go after the individual. I don't know what the flavor of the rest of the commission is going to be because it requires all of them to decide whether to move forward on a case. Mm -hmm. Finally, another good question, again below the line from a reader, asking what's happened to the proceeds of this $150 billion that's gone into the coffers of the regulators, the enforcers. Do we know? Is there any visibility on that? There's not a lot of visibility. The math gets a bit tricky. In part of these settlements, probably about half the money that was collected were these RMBS settlements. A significant portion of each of those settlements went towards something that they called consumer relief. That 
in and of itself can be dispersed in a variety of different ways. As we saw the mortgage market recover, there were less loan modifications and refinancings that the banks could do. So their money was supposed to be earmarked toward redevelopment, building low-income housing in certain depressed areas. There hasn't really been a check on everything that's happened with those proceeds. Then you also have another bucket, you know, some of the money that goes to the states. A lot of states allow it to go into the general fund, which then can be used for substance abuse programs, building Mm -hmm. highways. Uh, So it's kind of a hornet's nest to know where all the money is going and to really have a full check on that. Okay. And it's also quite dubious that that concept of consumer relief, right? If a bank has been found to have done wrong, you can make up some of the numbers by lending to hedge funds buying the distressed credits. That's right. I think we've seen that. I mean, it seems like Anything is acceptable as long as it fits under a bucket of mortgage securities or mortgages. Well, thanks very much, Cara. There's much more to come on FT.com as we mark the anniversary of the financial crisis. And that's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Jim, Cara, Ben and Anna for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at FT.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.